This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. My guest this month is Andy McCluskey of Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Andy McCluskey is a frontman of Merseyside Electronic Legends Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, or OMD as they're often known. OMD were formed in 1978 out of the ashes of another band, the Id, to which I have a little family connection which you'll hear about later. Their 1980 song Enola Gay earned them widespread popularity throughout Europe and their 1981 album Architecture and Morality would sell over 4 million copies and spawn hit singles like Souvenir and Made of New Orleans. Their follow-up album Dazzle Ships has just turned 40 years old this month as I recall this and its history is somewhat complicated. The album embraced sound collage and shortwave radio recordings. It's an album about technology and the Cold War. It sold just a fraction of its predecessor. It seems to have enjoyed a reappraiser over the years, and it was possibly just ahead of its time, and maybe it subverted expectations too. We get into it in the interview. After OMD fell apart, Andy masterminded 90s pop sensations Atomic Kitten, becoming a principal songwriter, alongside former OMD bandmate Stuart Kershaw. Andy's professional relationship with the band dissolved around their second album, and it strikes me as a somewhat surprising career path, so I was interested to hear Andy's thoughts on that too. OMD were formed in 2006 and were continuing concern. Their last album, the well-received The Punishment of Luxury, came out in 2017, and Andy updates with progress on the follow-up in our interview. I hope you enjoy our chat. Just a reminder, you can find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast and Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. And please leave a nice review and star rating of your podcast provider if you can. Finally, you can also find my forecast fiction series, Still Live at Midnight, at the usual podcasty places. It's a warm-hearted comedy drama set in 1980 in the world of late-night local radio. I'm super proud of it. Please check it out. Still Live at Midnight. That's it. Over to my interview with Andy. Matt, hi. Hey, Andy. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. I've, I've um, unfortunately, I've had a, quite a series of illnesses, but um, I'm a lot better now and uh, getting ready to go and do some gigs in Spain next week. A couple of uh, COVID orphans that have still been left after two postponements. So, um, yeah, things are still a bit out of sync, but um, we'll, be, we'll be good. Looking forward to it. Whereabouts are you? Are you still in sort of Liverpool area? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in... Um, I'm in the Wirral Peninsula, uh, where I grew up. In fact, actually, I live just a couple of miles away from where I grew up. And literally, if I go to the end of my garden and look down the hill towards the, 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 the Irish Sea, there's a gigantic pub in a place called Mel's. Uh, and I can see this pub, and I grew up right behind it, so I can literally see where I came from. <laughs> sort of like the Springsteen thing of being born to run and like ending up living kind of 10 minutes from where you grew up or something. Exactly. Well, you know, the thing is, I'm, I'm blessed that actually West Wirral is not a bad place to live. 
Um, so I get to I get to travel around the world, and I still get to come back and live here. So I'm happy boy. I'm down in South End on Sea. Okay, I've played a few gigs down there in the last ten years. You've played at the Cliffs, haven't you? So yeah. the Cliffs. I can go out my front door. And I can almost see the Cliffs almost as soon as I come out the front door. It's like a two minute walk that way. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I actually did a, uh, did a, the best video I've ever made was partly made in South End, actually. The um, one for Walking on the Milky Way. Some of it was on, um, it, it was it was around that, that part of the world. And I, th I think we, we got this <coughs> six foot tall Russian model in a bright green baby doll, nighty, wearing six inch heels, throwing a teddy down this high street in South End on Sersin to record. It was great, great, great film work. <laughs> Oh wow! You'll have to check it out. Walking on the Milky Way. Matt, do you mind if I turn my screen my screen off? Because I just hate looking at myself. All good, mate. I'll I'll leave mine right, on because I prefer it. Because I'd rather you could see me than. Okay, that's not. all right. If if you're a narcissistic journalist, that's fine. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for calling me a journalist. I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you'll wave the narcissist dig. Okay. Um. So Dazzle Ships is, f I think it was forty years old on Saturday. Mm, I know it's incredible. Do these anniversaries make you think about a passage of time and what it represents, and whether it feels like forty years, and what does forty years feel like anyway? Is that something that you sort of ponder? It does make you reflect uh, when you, you get to certain big numbers. Uh, I mean, you know, th th this this one is easily divides up because basically, you know, it was forty years ago, and I was twenty three. Yeah. And did I think did I think at the age of twenty three that I would be talking about? Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark and our fourth album in 40 years' time? No, I did not. Um, I mean, I, when I was 23 and doing Dazzle Ships, I still had the same mentality of the guy who I remember I, I was sitting in my local pub with a guy I'd gone to school with saying, if I'm still doing this when I'm 25, you have my permission to shoot me. <laughs> and now here I still am, 44 years later. As a 39-year-old listening to Dazzle Ships in 2023, it sounds pretty good to me. Like, it sounds um, like I can hear I can hear public service broadcasting in there and I can imagine, you know, Interpol covering of all the things we've made. Like, it's it sounds... It does not sound like a particularly odd album to me, but kind of reading about the context into which it was released, I get the vibe that it kind of was. I think in hindsight, it was it was just a little bit more than the Warholian 15 minutes ahead of the fashion. Yeah, um, yeah if you listen to it now, I mean, we are, we've come a long way in 40 years. You know, we're accustomed to listening to things that are more um, splintered. We, 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 we audio and visually multitask in, in a way that... Um, you know, nobody did back in in the early '80s. So all of the disparate samples and 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 the way it jumps around from sort of idea to idea, um, it all made sense to us. But then we were processing it and making it. I think from the outside, it seemed a bit splintered. Um, but it has been reappraised continuously since it came out, and constantly I keep hearing from people saying you know your greatest masterpiece is dazzle ships even though it kind of crippled you commercially at the time um 
and now it makes complete sense. And 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 you, as a thirty-nine-year-old, are kind of echoing that. That it it, it actually. It's not that weird and scary, but that's 40 years after the event. In 1983, it shocked people. Yeah. It, it's odd that a critical re-evaluation can change... I gather it's changed your own perception of the album as well. And the, the album itself has not changed. It always sounded like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like context is so... I think context is important in music we like to think it's not that it's just music should just be music but the the context and the narrative around it matters and i wondered how what what you've learned from that the fact the album hasn't changed but perhaps how you view the album has changed because of what other people think of it and the the context of the world around it changing I think when the album first came out, it was a bit of a shock to us because we had allowed ourselves to lull ourselves into this kind of false sense of security that um, everything we did, we did on our own terms. You know, every song we wrote, every stylistic choice we made was our own choice nobody was telling us what we should sound like what we should write songs about there was no a and r man at the record company going oh you know you need to write something that sounds like a single you can't do this you can't do that we just did what the hell we wanted and amazingly we plugged into the music industry and and suddenly we started selling records um following our own slightly kind of esoteric wonky blueprint and so I mean, if you listen to the Architectural Morality album, it's pretty weird in places. You know, it, it's not like Dazzle Ships came completely out of the blue. But um, I, 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 I think that we thought we could just do what we wanted and people would buy millions of it because that's what was happening. Yeah. You know, we, we were making up our own rules and we were selling millions of records. In hindsight, I think perhaps we we didn't sugarcoat some of the concepts and the ideas on dazzle ships in the way that we had unconsciously done so on architectural morality but pretty quickly after we got over the shock and disappointment pretty quickly i i I still always thought it was a great a great idea um it took paul humphreys 30 years to forgive me for it he definitely took a long time to change his mind but uh no i i, I always i always thought it was i always i thought i always thought it was a great album and you know over the last 40 years so many people have checked it as being like a really really uh, an album that I mean, even mark ronson said what a great album is had no idea how how fabulous this album was because nobody had ever talked to him about it you know it's odd how little it takes as well to freeze an album in time often it might just be like you think of something like bob dylan's self-portrait which i do think is a bad album but like there's that rolling stone review that just did so much damage to the album's reputation and became like a shorthand for like what the album was and so just because i think sometimes something can happen that freezes an album in time but it's not necessarily the fans perspective and again fans are going to have different views anyway sometimes there's this idea there's this this collective truth about an album and it's often a lot more complicated than that yeah i mean i i i take the point you're making that certainly that there becomes 
if there's sufficient press around it, and and I know mean, these days, of course, you just you just get lots of, you know, people on social media all chipping in. So there's this tsunami of 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 reviews by, by people who bought or listened or the general public. And yeah, you, you know, you can create a t- if if there's sufficient in one way or another, you create a tipping point impression. Um, so I, I I take that point. Um, I just think that you know it wasn't it wasn't that weird and it wasn't that bad but some of the journalists um really had a go at it at the time um the same journalists who'd been bitching at us about why are you writing songs about dead french saints why don't you get more political we got more political and they complained about that i mean i i had a long and loathsome relationship with most of the press i i i was I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I was quite thin-skinned. I mean, I, you know, I, I did. Um, I was determined to do what I wanted to do, and and Paul usually trusted me and came along on the journey. But um, but I I did I did hate it when people were negative. Usually because you know a lot of a lot of music journalists once they decide they're getting the knife out, they just indulge themselves in in being you know vicious for its own sake and sort of amusingly vicious and it's just i don't think it's good journalism it it, it hurts and it makes you angry so you call me a journalist was actually a pejorative term earlier that was not a compliment at all you're worrying too much <laughs> um are you familiar with um wilco's yankee hotel foxtrot album i haven't heard it for a million years but i have listened to it yeah um because i've just released a ex- super expanded version of that and oh, yeah. one of my favourite albums, and been reading a lot about the making of it, and there's a lot of parallels with Dazzle Ships. Jeff Tweedy had bought this box set called The Connet Project, Recordings of Shortwave Number Stations. Oh, and yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. He became sort of fascinated with how these sounds just can affect your, you know, your state of consciousness almost, mm-hmm. and how these sounds just could change your environment and then it course triggered memories of listening to a transistor radio you know as, as a kid at night and this magical feeling of just stuff being beamed you know f- through the air from faraway places and the, the sort of magic in that is that the is that kind of the thinking that led you to dazzle ships as well or did you come at it from a very different idea I um I can see the similarities from what you're saying, but I think I think the approach was different. Um, I had been uh, raised by a Scottish communist father. I used to buy Chinese propaganda magazines. I was extremely left wing, extremely alternative, extremely challenging of every rule. And as a teenager, I used to listen to shortwave radio. Um, and listen to all of the communist propaganda stations across Europe with their jingles and, and, and everything. So when I decided I was going to get more political in 1982, 83, um, and I keep saying I, I know we're a band, but I keep saying I, but I mean, this was very, very much driven by me. Um, Paul Paul is the kind of intuitive musician. I'm the one that does all the um, overthinking. I I wanted to go back to the sense I had of awe and excitement of, you know, all these faraway different places with different 
mentalities and different attitudes to life and politics. So I was mining my own childhood memories, really, by getting a new digital shortwave radio and and scanning the channels and, and, and sort of collecting all of these sounds that, that really were redolent of my teen years, about sort of seven or eight years previously. Um, and I was, yeah, just, just, just wanted to... And also because... The, the title of the album came from, you know, the, the dazzle painting on, on on ships, in particularly in the first first world war, but also somewhat in the second world war, and so we were still in the cold war. You know, we we were just going through the Falklands War actually when we were writing the album, so there was a lot of resonance of of, of warfare, currents, uh, cold war, all these things were kind of bouncing around in my head. So I was trying to kind of make a collection of audio that would reflect where my thoughts were it must be weird when you, an album is a document of your headspace at a certain time what's mm-hmm. it like being 40 years removed from that do, do you find it amusing now do you find it sad how does it feel when you have to go back and hear yourself 40 years ago um, no, I, I, certainly not amusing nor sad. I, I'm actually very proud of of, of what we were doing. I, I think it's um, I think it's a strong album. I think it's got interesting concepts. I think it's very well executed. Um, we were huge, huge fans of Kraftwerk, and I think in many ways, Dazzle Ships kind of is the spawn of Kraftwerk's Radioactivity album because that had lots of little esoteric pieces of samples and found sounds. Um, And one of the things I'm truly proud about is that that actually Time Zones um, was really inspired by a track on um, the Radioactivity album where they just had all these news stations overlapping each other. But we actually got ours to be in sync and in time from all the way around the world and try to do that without a digital sampler try to do that by spinning in tapes by hand was um was quite tricky so i uh, no, i i listened to that album and i think yeah you were a spiky but fairly interesting 23 year old mccluskey <laughs> and i'm proud of you that's nice it's nice i'm also interested in the idea of this kind of sonic wallpaper using kind of radio static as this kind of oral landscape and do you think a lot about where the line is between what's a song what's an arrangement what's production sometimes you can get distracted by the sound of something and maybe you know the the top line melody is almost an afterthought because you've got fixated on I may talk about my own experience when I've made music and things it's it's easy to, to do that and when you've got an aesthetic in mind for a project, do you, is that something you think a lot about? I think certain certain ideas lend themselves to different execution. I think if you know if if you're doing something called time zones, then you know you know it's going to be uh, a, a concrete music found sound collage. Um, if you're doing other things, you'll come at it from a different approach. I mean. <clears throat> everything makes sense to us we, we started out with you know paul cannibalizing his auntie's radios for the circuit boards me on an upside down base and things we could make out of anything that was to hand that we could 
mic up. We had no money and we had really no real instruments. So we started quite kind of abstract and concrete music and found sounds. The record company used to ask us, you know, whether we were ABBA or Stockhausen. And we said, well, we can be both, can't we? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that was the approach. It it all makes sense to us. You know, it, we, there, there's no difference between something that, you know, like Radio Prague and a song like Telegraph. You know, one's very poppy and one is just a recording of the call sign of Radio Prague. It all made sense to us. We, we weren't. And, but, but I'll tell you one thing. When we do something that is, for lack of a better phrase, experimental, where you're pushing the boundaries or trying different things, we don't just go, okay, well, we've got this idea and we've executed it, so, okay, well, there you go. That, that, that's the idea, boom. It has to have a musicality to it. Yeah. You know, it, it needs to bear repeated listening. So anything that's an experiment, that, that you're trying something out that might be a little out of the normal, we want it to actually bear repetition, you know, where it's like you just go, oh, well, you know, we're going to record some dog farts and some, uh, you know, kicking a car tire and um, blah, blah, blah. And we'll throw them all together and see what it sounds like. Oh, great. Yeah. What does it sound like? Well, it sounds like some dog farts and kicking a car tire. Do I want to listen to it again? No. You know, <laughs> so yeah. it has to have a musicality. Yeah. The landscape has changed so much in 40 years and it's interesting where for want of a better term pop music is now because genre lines seem to have just collapsed and the idea that you can mention the national and taylor swift in the same breath is kind of mad isn't it but does that work in your favor creatively do you are you do you like where the landscape is at the moment do you think it it's it works well for omd or do you do you like there being a degree of tribalism and kind of being in a working in a certain zone i think there's considerably less tribalism than there used to be yeah um because we're in this postmodern era now where you know there's nothing really brand new no one new style replaces another style that's now considered out of date we're in this kind of atomized postmodern era where you know, everything is acceptable if, if if people deem it to be acceptable yeah um the the bottom line is, you know, hits are generally still things that have a good tune that people can can remember the top line melody, uh, whatever style it's in. Um, I do find that quite a lot of music now for me is is very bland. Uh, that you know that the the lyrics just are the same old same old, and and the instrumentation is the same old same old. It doesn't really do much for me, uh, but it's it was ever that way. That's why I was interested in a few alternative music music artists in the 70s and very few i mean basically you know when i was a kid it was like i, I liked Kraftwerk, noy david bowie brian you know roxy music the velvet underground yeah it's weird being a bit young because i i get a sense of the tribalism that existed in the 70s and it kind of melts my brain because i love genesis and yes and floyd but i also love craft work and joy division and whatever and to me it's just mm -hmm. i i I, I can't understand why you can. Yeah. Well, you're not allowed to like. Well, you, you, you see, like you, yeah. it just does my head in. You know, you're, you're looking back at it from this kind of postmodern pick and mix society, so you don't understand it. In the seventies, when you got to the mid late seventies, people who wanted Kraftwerk and wanted Joy Division or wanted the Clash were saying to themselves, you know, Genesis 
and the Eagles and uh, American soft rock or Pink Floyd at the time in the 60s, they were alternative too. But then they just kind of kind of came predictable, fat and flabby uh, musically, I think it, it was the attitude. Uh, if you look back now, yeah, I I, I have mellowed. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I used to loathe uh, rock bands, but now I think Led Zeppelin were amazing. Um, at the time, if you'd asked me about Led Zeppelin, I would have said all sorts of horrible things about them because I just considered them to be, you know, a hairy cliche yeah. of themselves. I am curious, because um, when you, as I understand it, it was Carl Bartos, a craft work that suggested in the 90s that you create a new band as a vehicle for your songwriting. Correct. Do you think Atomic Kitten was the kind of band that he had in mind? Is that what he was suggesting you do? Or No, I don't think... Uh... The conversation was really just, I said, I'm just going to write some songs because I, I think the vehicle is considered past its sell-by date, i.e. orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Um, I, and, and in, in hindsight, I wish actually I'd carried on a bit longer because I would have gone into the postmodern era and we would have been started to be rehabilitated a lot more swiftly than stopping as we did. Um Carl said to me, he said, just don't don't just give your songs to the publishing company. You'll just be a song whore and, and, and people will basically say, oh, can we change the words? Can we change the tempo? Can we change this? Can we change that? He said, what you should do if you want to write songs is create your own vehicle. And I said, well, like what? And he said, well, what's the best manufactured pop type? And I said, three-piece girl band. Hmm. Uh, like the Supremes, you know, um, the Renettes, Bananarama, even. Uh, that's what, you know, that, that, and um, and so Carl said, okay, well, there you go then. Three-piece girl band. I don't think he knew it was going to be quite like Atomic Kitten, but um, it was, yeah, it was, the, the Kittens was an interesting journey. Yeah. Again, I think I've probably mellowed a lot on pop music from when I was a snooty indie kid in the 90s or whatever, and it's like, were you worried about your credibility creating such what what would be that term manufactured pop whatever that means Do no because i changed my attitude to manufactured pop by that so i realized that actually you know the, you know the supremes were a manufactured band the monkeys yeah. were a manufactured band you know the the there were all sorts of great bands you know the righteous brothers were manufactured you know it, it's to me it was just i started to realize that actually it doesn't matter if the music has quality, and I, and and I like I like pop music. I always liked pop music. You know, in the seventies, I was listening to glam rock that was in the charts, and you no know, Slade and or, or T Rex. I loved it. Um, so I, I I did always like pop music. I just wanted to do something that was musical but more interesting. Uh, so I, that was the kind of tightrope I was I was trying to walk. The album I did with them, their first album. I'm really proud of. I think the songs on there are amazing. And Whole Again is one of the best songs I ever wrote. Huh. Um, are you working on a follow-up to Punishment of Luxury? Yeah. Yeah. It's finished. Paul's just mixing it now. Oh, wow. What does it sound like? Um, it's hard to say, really. Um, I think it. I think it sounds like orchestral maneuvers in the dark in the new millennium. I, I think that it. I think it's not going to be 
sonically and stylistically hugely different to Punishment of Luxury. Um, you know, when you when you've got your face immersed in it, when you when you've been listening to it a lot, it's hard to be objective. Yeah. I do. Paul and I do firmly believe that Punishment of Luxury is one of the best albums we ever made. Mm. Um, which is unusual for a band of our age, but I think it, we're very proud of it. I think we did a great job. I think Paul's been terrified of this album not living up to that, but I think you've got to you've got to try. I, th I think there's some great songs on. It. I mean, the title track is fabulous. The album is called Bauhaus Staircase. Nice. Typical OMD, OMD title. Um, it's got a song on there called Anthropocene. Um, it's got a beautiful song called Look At Me Now, which kind of sounds like a new version of Souvenir, but with me singing on it, not Paul. Um, I think I think people are going to I think people are going to like it. Uh, you know, how, where it'll stand within the canon. I don't know. Um, it's definitely going to be the last Orchestral Manus in the Dark Studio album. Um, it only exists because of COVID, because I rediscovered the total boredom of the, the, the kind of creative power of total boredom I had nothing else to do but I, I, I really didn't think I want to sit in this room again and, and write music but um, I had nothing else to do so I you did. say that and you say that now you say that now um, I, I, I honestly don't know I, I, I really don't know I, I think also I think Paul is considering the future because he's now remarried and has a nice house in France and he has a little daughter and I think he wants to maximise the rest of his life by, by being a, a father um before i go i, I need to um, ask something on behalf of my father-in-law because my father-in-law was in a new wave band in the early 80s called era 101 and they advertised for a, a bass player and the guy that that showed up and got the job was steve hollas who was oh yeah yeah in the, the id. id yeah um you got any memories of steve hollas um, yeah, he was uh, Canadian. He was studying at the same electronics college as Paul and uh, Gary Hodgson, who was also the guitarist in the year. Gary Hodgson, we still work with. He became an incredible um, road tech guy. And um, yeah, Steve used to have to come over on the train and um, used to wear a top hat on stage, I seem to recall. He was very tall <laughs> and he had... Um, we had a bass, had a small Fender. It was, I always thought it looked too small on him because he was a big guy and he had a small like. Was it a what's, what was the bass? Is it a Mustang or something like? That? I can't remember what it was. But uh, yes, yeah, so how, how long did he play with Steve? I don't think it was for ages. Um, they were played around the sort of. We're, he's from South End area, so they sort of played around local mm -hmm. area. I think they got as far as having a demo recorded by Jake Rivera. Um, oh right, okay. And that sort of never went. So anywhere. presumably, Steve had Steve had gone down south to yeah. to work or to study or he something. He ended yeah. up living on a. I think he had like a houseboat somewhere in Essex or something. Okay. He'd, he'd moved down to Essex and he'd seen this advert in like a guitar shop. Um, mm. So he ended up playing with Era One. These were one of those Era One Hundred One were like a band. They had a keyboard player called Spider who could only play like one note at a time. You know, oh, I like that man already. Yeah, there's some, there's some great, there's some great <laughs> stories. Did he, did he influence the sound of the id very much, or were your songs already kind of in place by that point? No, I, I think, I think to be honest, uh, because I am also a bass player, I think a lot of his parts were written by me, right? And then he had to just play them. So, which is probably why he uh, decided to go, yeah, off to college in the summer of '78 and with everybody else, and Paul and I, well. It seemed stupidly at the time, decided not to go. And um, 
<laughs> and created a band. If Paul's mother had found out that he'd actually been offered uh, an apprenticeship with um, the, uh, British, the, what, the, the company that would become British Telecom, she would have killed him because you know, she was a widow. She'd had to raise him and his brother uh, you know, by working six days a week to keep the roof over their heads. So I, uh, I took a gap year and, and he decided not to go to uh, his apprenticeship. And had, had she found out, she would have been furious but uh yeah steve steve went off to to work and and that we you know at that that was when the the id split up really which you know in hindsight again was a good thing because paul and i then got to do exactly what we wanted yeah. um well i'll see you in 40 years the anniversary of bauhaus staircase and yeah uh, that will be great i'll look forward to that um this is the thing is this is the scary thing is that now you know the reality is you know I will not be around to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Bauhaus Staircase. But, um, you know, what was amazing was in 2015, we actually got to sell out the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. And half of the show was us playing all of the Dazzle Ships album and the B-sides. Yeah. And people travelled from around the world specifically to hear that. Yeah. So just goes to show how how times do change, you know. Uh, um, the other thing as well is just to let you into a little secret. On the 25th anniversary of the uh, release of Dazzle Ships, I had learned enough about the music industry. And also people had changed and there was some fabulously lazy cut and paste journalism going on. But I wrote the press release for the re-release of Dazzle Ships. Yeah. And it was me that called it the fractured masterpiece. And everywhere you go now, everybody says it's the fractured masterpiece. Just shows you how easy it is to manipulate people. <laughs> but I'm proud of the album. I'm still inordinately proud of that album. I'll stand by that. It, it's it's in it's in my uh, my top three or four of anything we ever did. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking, mate. Hopefully, I'll get to see you in the summer. Yeah, I mean, we're we're uh, we're playing. We've got a few gigs down your way, I think. London is it Fulham Palace or something you do in London? We're playing Fulham Palace. Yeah, we're also playing at Audley End. Um, it'll it'll be, it'll be the hits. I mean, this is this is the other thing now. It's like we we can wear whichever hat we want. You know, we can do something weird. We can play with an orchestra. We can play all of a weird album, or we can just go on stage and kick out fourteen hit singles and have a party. Yeah, it's nice to be able to do all these different things. Yeah, come and see us. Say hi. And that's our show. Thanks as always to our guests whose opinions are their own. Thanks also this week to Ashley Matthews. See you soon.